0: Today's teaching is a little different in that um, we're not going to be just camped out in one passage, but we will start in John chapter six. So if you wanna turn there, John chapter six, six, starting at verse 53, but we're not there quite yet. Um, If you didn't know, um, I said this first service, I think it bears worth repeating. This is the young, handsome Rick, so you can let him know I said that. I said this first service, that guy, I love him. He teases me and he's always, you know, he's got the final word. So when he's not here and can't defend himself, oh, man, I gotta take advantage of that. So, um, Discipleship 101. That's what is on my heart. That's kinda where we're starting and I call it 101 because it really is just a start. We're just skimming the surface. Journeymen in Jesus. I have said this many times, but I wanna share it again. I just wanna bring it to our attention. Many in the church have been confounded with a growing concern as we've witnessed a growing trend among the youth over the decades. In their research collaboration with Awana, Barna explains it something like this. What we're seeing is the result of a lack of spiritual formation, For a long time, people have been concerned about church attendance. But church attendance is not what Jesus is about. He's concerned with the Spirit. He didn't come to redecorate and overhaul the synagogues and later on church buildings. He came to do an overhaul on our hearts. Why do we see this trend? And honestly, it's not plateauing, it's certainly not reversing, In fact, in many ways, it's growing at an exponential rate. Sorry, Benny. (laughs) You're like, that's terrifying. (laughs) Hang on. Why? Why do we see this trend? Well, for one, we've gotten away from God's word. Now, for those of us who are here at the bridge, we need to be careful not to pop our collar and go, well, good thing I'm at the bridge. We are in the word. We as a church in this country have also gotten away from what it means to follow Christ and how to follow him. But before we descend into disappointment and discouragement, and God forbid, hopeless apathy, let me encourage us all by way of reminder, myself included. I'm a father, got a son who's 10 and a half, daughter who's just, well, I, I wasn't gonna say it, but I'll take advantage of where I'm at this morning. My daughter turns eight tomorrow, so yeah, yeah. So I know what it's like to be a parent in this day and age, trying to raise our children for Jesus. But begin, uh, but before, again, we start to get discouraged or disillusioned, I wanna ask us, what did Jesus promise about the church's establishment? What did Jesus say about the growth and the lifespan of his church? Matthew 16, 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it." If Hades can't overpower the church, communist China won't. Woke, liberal, or overtly uh, religious spirits and countries won't, okay? Because Jesus promised it. Some have confused this, though, to mean that Peter established the church. But Peter himself makes it clear in 1 Peter 2, 6 that Jesus is the cornerstone upon which the household of God is built. Peter, pebble, rock. The rock and the pebble are not the same. You could call Peter a chip off the old block. Jesus is the bedrock. He's the cornerstone. Both for Israel and the church, the rock isn't Peter, the rock is Jesus. Jesus. And faith in Jesus is what the church is built on. And that should give us great comfort and confidence. We don't need to be afraid that the church is failing or will fail. I am also not saying or suggesting that we put our heads in the sand. There are issues. All you have to do is read the the beginning of the book of Revelation, and Jesus has some very serious things to say to a number of the churches. There are issues. The church will not fail. The only reason the bridge is where it's at is by God's good grace and his spirit because his word is lifted up. But we are far from perfect and we have lots of room to grow. And fortunately, I don't say that with condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I I just, Lord, I feel compelled again to pray. Would you encourage and edify and equip your people today with your word That this would not hang on a man's ability to teach. That this would be inspired by you, Holy Spirit. There are things that you put on my heart, but as I've seen and we've all experienced for any of us who've walked with you for any length of time, you can inspire things in our hearts based on what someone said and has nothing to do with what they were saying. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all truth. Illuminate the eyes of our hearts and give us revelation of who you are and who you've called us to be. So Jesus promised our foundation of faith is in him and it's firm. On Christ the solid rock we stand. Not on Peter, not on the Pope, not on Protestantism, not on Evangelicalism. On Christ the solid rock we stand because all other ground is? All right. Jesus saw many who started the walk with him. Many, but when his commands chafed and challenged their thoughts and their feelings, they walked away, and that's where we start here at John chapter six, verse 53. Would you follow with me? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. That word abide is very important. And I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the, father, the fathers ate and died. He's referring to manna in Exodus. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things Jesus said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? Is this scandalous? Does this offend you? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Was Jesus disappointed in his work? Was he discouraged, depressed, or even disillusioned with his mission and his identity? Not once. Why not? I mean, think about that. I I know I have, and I have over the years with students. I've had some students who, man, I just thought, yeah, they're solid, and then they don't hang. They leave, and I hear decisions they make after, they don't just leave our youth ministry, but they just stop fellowship within the church, and it breaks my heart. But who I am and what I'm called to shouldn't be dependent on someone else. If it's really from the Lord, my confidence should be in him. And that's true for all of us. Jesus wasn't disillusioned, why? Because not all the sheep that come on Sunday are part of his church. I don't know where all of you are at. There were, we see, disciples followers of Jesus. Outside of his 12, he's not referring to the 12. He's referring to the large crowds that had begun to follow him. And when he says this, they leave. Jesus pushes it too far. He crossed a line with what they thought and felt was right. Clearly, he wasn't the master of everyone that followed him. And just like not all the sheep that come on Sunday are part of his church, not all who descend from Abraham are children of Israel, Romans 9 tells us. 2 Timothy 19 tells us, the Lord knows who are his. We read that just now in John chapter six. Jesus knew who were really his and who weren't. So don't worry about the numbers. As people do research and we see trends, it does this. It does that. That's not our concern. That's God's concern. He will build his church. Our responsibility is to devote ourselves individually and together to Jesus. Your concern is to devote yourself to Jesus. And as we do, he produces the fruit of his faithfulness in us. If you just devote yourself to him, he will produce in and through you his glory. 1 Corinthians 3, seven. Jesus said, you're my disciples. And if you're my disciples, it's my Father's will that you bear much fruit. God wants to do it. You don't have to do it, you just have to receive it. You don't have to strive to produce it, he produces it. All we have to do is avail ourselves to him. That, however, requires a want. A want. Where is your want to this morning? Do you really want Jesus? Or, as I have experienced in my own life many times, or do I just, do I like the idea of Jesus? Do I want to want Jesus, or do I want Jesus? Let's start with defining what discipleship is. The term discipleship is not in the Bible. Acts 14, 21 shows that discipleship, as we address it, can refer to when someone gives their life to Jesus. The moment of, the Bible says, conversion. Someone being born again. Discipleship begins. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. They continued the message they had been given by Jesus. Jesus said it in John 16, You will, disciples, experience tribulations and trials, many kinds, but be of good cheer. Have joy, because I've overcome the world. I didn't share this first service, but I remember reading this, and I went, wait a minute, they're onto something. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes, and oftentimes, especially here in the West, we think discipleship doesn't start until they come to Christ. Well, Jesus' 12 followed him for three, three and a half years. They weren't born again until the end of his ministry. But he calls them disciples anyway. You got, those of you in this room who do truly believe in Jesus, you may have people in your life who don't know him yet, and you're spending time with them, you talk, you bring it up. Discipleship begins then. It doesn't begin just after they give their life to Christ. That's an interesting food for thought, isn't it? That being said, on, for my part, my discipleship began, my devotion began the day I formally gave my life to him. So, In these two verses of Acts 14, we see discipleship both as the conception of faith, but also, as we see in verse 22, the process of growing up in our faith. They made many disciples and they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Discipleship has to begin somewhere. You can't raise children until you give birth to them. But, And this is true, and this is something our culture has done to desensitize and even deceive us into thinking, they're not your children once they're born. They're your children the moment they're conceived. Spiritually speaking, you and I don't know when that process is, though. God knows who are his. And he's not just talking about after they give their life to Christ. He knew who were his before the foundation of the earth, which gives me great encouragement, too. Your work, and the Lord is not in vain. So <clears throat> you can't disciple people until you've made disciples of people. I wanna begin a discussion on discipleship this morning with four questions. But we're only gonna have time to really start getting into two. The first two questions are, what is a disciple? And this has been talked about in length over and over. You may have already heard this before. I encourage you not to tune it out. Not because I have something fresh, but the Holy Spirit might have something fresh for you. Like Les was saying, how many times have we heard the same thing, read the same thing in the Bible, and then, boom, we see something we've always seen, and yet we see it in a way we never have before. So don't tune it out. It might be simple, but Jesus also said that the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is if you're converted and become like a child. So, second question is, why make disciples? And I think that is a very important question. I never thought of it this way, but as I was studying, the Lord brought that to my attention. Why? Why do it? Now, for those of us who love Jesus, or grew up in the church, we automatically go, well, we make disciples because that's what we do. Why? Because Jesus said so. Well, that's true, but there's more to it than that. The other two questions, and we're not going to get into today, who makes disciples? and What's my part as a disciple? Now, if you're here this morning and you aren't born again, you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're in for a treat. You get a little insider's look at, to, at what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. But for those of us here who truly do know Jesus... Um, Buckle up, buttercup. (laughs) We're just getting started. Instead of camping out in one passage like we normally do, and this is contrary even to what I'm comfortable with, couldn't get away from it. And fortunately, I'm encouraged as you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly, when he's teaching, he's pulling from excerpts in the Old Testament, putting them together. So we're gonna look at three three to four sections of Scripture And what do I have tabbed here? Yeah, about four. Let's start with the first question. What is a disciple? Now, let me preface this. This teaching is not all-encompassing. I do not think for a second that when you walk out of here, you will know everything it means to be a disciple. It's not true. I don't know everything it means to be a disciple. I am a disciple, and I'm continuing to learn what it means. So just know that. We're all in process here this morning together. With that said, would you turn over to Mark chapter one, verse 16? Mark one, 16. If you don't have a Bible and you wanna follow along, we've got Bibles here in the back, I'd encourage you to. So, just like reading Rainbow, remember that? I'm dating myself. It's in a book, (laughs) reading Rainbow. Don't take my word for it, read the book yourself. Let's get into God's word together and follow him and what he's teaching us. In verse 16, as he, that's Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. So, what were Simon Peter and Andrew doing when Jesus encountered them? Fishing, fishing. yeah, don't worry. It's not a profound <laughs> theological question. They were fishing. Here's, <laughs> here's the other question. How did they become fishermen? They didn't just pick up some poles. They weren't a couple of kids fishing for crawdads. These guys were professional fishermen. How did they become fishermen? Someone schooled them, pun intended. All right, who though schooled them in being fishermen? Continue on to verse 19. Going on a little farther, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. The next group of guys Jesus brought on board were Jacob and John. I know it says James, but you students who've gone through the book of James with us, no, that's just a Gentile translation of the Hebrew name, Jacob. Jacob and John, and who were they working with? Their father, Zebedee. Just like trades today, plumbing, construction, stonemason, landscaping, painting, electrician, And yes, fishing. Back then, to become a fisherman, you had to train under someone by practicing the craft. Who was the primary teacher? Uh Uh-huh, and I remember, I remember as a child watching, (laughs) I remember watching The Secret Garden and uh, other English period films. And when I got older, I started realizing that the more affluent English families would often send their kids away to boarding school and it bothered me. I was like, man, I'm glad I wasn't born back then. At a a young age, the parents would send them off. Oh, that just is unsettling as a child. As a child, I innately knew that kids need their dad and mom. And as I've grown, I've learned and appreciated just how necessary It is that parents serve as the primary teachers and leaders in their kids' lives. So I'm not saying like, for example, Jeremy and I, we serve in youth ministry. Um, And I'm not saying that that has no place. But he and I, Connie, we cannot be the primary teachers and leaders of these students' lives. We get them for a small window. And our desire is to partner with parents, supplement and complement, and support what the parents are teaching their kids. But ultimately, that mantle of responsibility and privilege is not mine. I remember years back, it happens every so often, especially when we have an event here and we've got teenagers serving and they're helping set up or run things and parents sometimes, or people in the fellowship will come and say, man, these teens are doing a great job. Good job, Jake. Like I like it's, you know, my credit. And I'm like, "Thanks, but if you really want to talk to the people who are responsible for the conduct you see in these young men and women, their mom and dad are over there. It starts with us at home. Our children will have people in different stages of life serve a role to supplement and support what we are investing in our children. But the father and mother are the ones that God has placed the spiritual mantle upon in training their kids. We, we need to get back to that. And I think in light of 2020, a lot of parents started seeing, whoa, what a, wait a second, these people that we've just inadvertently, subconsciously trusted went, this isn't right. That's not what I want them to, to learn. I think it's, it's a check for us, especially in the church. What are we imparting? How are we training up our kids? Now going back to Mark 1:16, what does Jesus say in verse 17 to Peter and Andrew that implies this type of training? He says in verse 17, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. In Matthew it says, and I will make you fishers of men. That doesn't happen overnight though just like any of the trades or any profession, really. I'm having this ongoing conversation with our son. When he started school, he couldn't wait to do it, couldn't wait to be a big kid. Now he's been doing school long enough, he's like, I don't wanna do school when I grow up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If you don't do any more school after high school, you'll still be in something called the school of life. I hate to break it to you, son. But all of us, whether we go to a four-year university or get our master's, or we do the trades. A lot of us who have lived some length of life begin, have realized you're gonna get training. You have to get training in what you're doing, even if it's a barista. You know, my hat's off to baristas. That's pre, it is pretty demanding. I've, I've done it for a little bit, and you gotta get trained in that. There's training in everything. How did I get trained? I didn't, I didn't go show up to Starbucks and take classes. I think I watched one video, but to become a barista, I trained with baristas, and they put me with baristas who knew what they were doing, who were efficient, proficient, competent. They knew the game, they knew how to work it. They knew everything that I needed to learn, and the only way I was gonna learn is if I partnered with them. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become Jesus's closest 12 disciples became the apostles we know because they were first and foremost follower learners of Jesus. They partnered with Jesus. They followed Jesus. This wasn't accomplished in a classroom. Jesus didn't show up after their nine to five job and have a couple hours in the evening with them or even weekends in the synagogue. It was the way of life. And I'll submit to you, it wasn't just the way of life for the three, three and a half years he walked with them. It didn't stop. And that's your first point. If you're taking notes, I've got here, a disciple is a way of life. I know that's poor grammar. Forgive me. A disciple is a way of life. We have for too long secularized or sectionized our Our Christianity—I don't even like to use that term because it's got this religious, superficial, institutional connotation to it. We are Christians on Sunday. We're Christians at church. Well, my students who've been with me, my kids—I say to them all the time—and I get it. I don't think you're sinning if you say to your kids, "Hey, we're going to church." I get that, but. If we're gonna really break it down to its truest form, we don't go to church, we are the church. Those of us who belong to Jesus are part of the body of Christ. We go to gather together though. Go into church to gather together. We go to be with the church. Anyway, a disciple is a way of life. It's not a nine to five job, it's not in a classroom, it's not a weekend. Being a Christian's not a side gig. There's a lot of those. That's not what this is, it's a way of life. It's all or nothing. Would you turn over to John 16 with me? Starting, we'll start at verse five. (coughs) John 16, five. Remember how I said that their discipleship program didn't just last for three, three and a half years? This is why. But now, Jesus says to his 12, I am going to him, that's the Father, who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have, and here it is, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes He will guide you in all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose to you. I am, uh, I'm not gonna expound in depth on this passage. Because instead, I'm compelled to invite you personally to explore what Jesus is teaching you personally in this. I'm gonna point something out here though. And if you'd like to understand what we just read, what Jesus just said, you go online and listen to Rick's teaching. He plows this deep, it's great, awesome teaching. What I will say is this, discipleship did not end for the 12 after Jesus left, and that's why. You guys are putting it together here. He had more to relate to his following friends, but they weren't ready yet. They weren't ready. We see that after Jesus returned to the Father like he promised, he sent the helper, also just like he had promised. We see these newly appointed apostles continue their discipleship training through the book of Acts. And not the acts of the apostles, the acts of the Holy Spirit. Because there are places in the book of Acts the apostles are not the subject. Some of the, sometimes they're not even in a specific story. Who is in the story throughout it, just like the gospels, the book of Acts? It's about the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in his body, the church. And we see this as the Holy Spirit continues to empower and train them. And that's the next point here. And this was a kind of a, It stopped me in my tracks. I'm I'm reading this, and the Lord's speaking this to me, and I'm going, oh, I never thought of it that way. So again, you might hear a lot of the things you've heard before, but don't tune it out because there may be a nuance that he, not me, will speak to you that you've never seen before. For me personally, this is the next point I put down, a disciple is tutored by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna... I'm gonna use my relationship with Jeremy as an example here. I've had, I've known Jeremy since he was in his eighth grade year and there's a really cool story there, our relationship, and there have been a lot of things that I've imparted to my brother. But in the at the end of the day, Jeremy's not where he's at because of me. Which is great because if he messes up, it's not on me. No. And when he succeeds, and you are, and I'm, I'm so... I'm not proud of you. I am so deeply filled with joy and gladness to see who the Lord is in you, bro. And that's it. The Holy Spirit has tutored my brother. And my brother has devoted himself to Jesus to know his word. And we get together and we ping off each other. Do not forsake assembling together, Hebrews 10, 23 through 25. Why? When we assemble together as saints of the holy priesthood, We stimulate each other to love and good deeds. We stimulate each other by the power of the Holy Spirit. And who bears the fruit? The Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit tutors us. Now, for you Bible students, Bible geeks, (laughs) turn over to Matthew chapter five, verse one. Now we'll look at the Greek word of disciple. Many of you know this. the Greek word for disciple. What does it actually mean? This is, by the way, at least in our English translation, the first time the word disciple is mentioned in the New Testament scriptures. Look at verse one with me. I should look at verse one with me, too. Flip it over there, Jake. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit tutors you in your faith and not people like me? (laughs) Verse one, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. That word disciples in the Greek is mathetes. It simply means learner or pupil, okay? That still doesn't give us a whole lot just by itself. To gain a fuller understanding, let's look at Isaiah 8.15. I've got it here already, you can turn there if you want. Isaiah 8.15 says, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Being a disciple goes way back, way, be, way before the New Testament. This isn't a New Testament red letter Christian thing. <laughs> this goes way back. The law that God is referring to, to Isaiah here, or through Isaiah rather, is referring to what Jewish people call the law of Moses. But let's make this, get this straight too. It's the law of God. Moses was just the messenger. He doesn't get to take credit for it either. All great respect for that man. One day, look forward to meeting him. But it's God's law. God gave it to Moses, who then, by dictation and command of God, passed it down to Israel, the whole people, as well as the priests. In Hebrew, this law is called Torah. In the Greek, Pentateuch, and Pentateuch means five books and it's referring to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now remember, Isaiah 8.15 says, bind up the testimony, that's the witness, and seal the law among my disciples. Does anyone, I'm curious, does anyone know how many specific laws there were to the Jewish people that God gave Moses? 616. (laughs) Yeah, I got 613 here. I'm not sure if that factors in the 10 commandments or not. See, again, I'm a disciple in, gro- in, in learning here. 613 laws God gave Moses, who taught and passed on to Israel and the priesthood. As Israel developed a dynastic monarch with David, a career of scribes then developed. And we read about that in 2 Samuel eight sixteen. There's a reference to that. Where do these scribes come from? In the beginning, most if not all the scribes, all these disciples of the law were priests. These scribes were connected to the priesthood. That's because priests were responsible to know, practice, copy, and teach God's law. We're gonna come back to this concept of priesthood, so don't forget this. Going back to Isaiah 8.15, we see that these disciples were students of God's law. We have people who do this for a living today, right? They go for a law degree, students in law, and it takes them many years, and it's not for the faint of heart, it's hard work. Even after someone graduates from law school, they must take an exam to show proficiency in the law just to become an attorney, prosecutor, or judge. That doesn't mean they're professionals or masters in it, they're proficient, though, after many, many years and long days and nights. <coughs> Excuse me. But even after they've graduated and passed the exam, they passed the bar, they'll spend the rest of their careers as students of the law. Hang on a second. <coughs> Let's get the better of me. Here we go. So I'm trying to talk too soon. Hang on. It's okay. We're here. <coughs> All right. But even after they've graduated and passed the exam, they'll spend the rest of their careers as students of the law. Now, Luke 6:40. Keeping this in mind. (coughs) A pupil, Jesus says, is not above his teacher. Teacher is instructor. But everyone, after he's been fully trained, will be like his teacher. A pupil, in Jesus' day, wasn't someone who went to a room, took notes, listening to an instructor or lecturer. <coughs> a pupil is what we would call an apprentice. That word, when, <clears throat> when that came to my mind, man, I'm getting there, getting better. <coughs> when God showed me that paradigm, I was like, whoa. <clears throat> because disciple is a term that it doesn't get used today, really. Nobody's like, I'm a disciple of this program over here, unless you go to Bible college. But apprentice, that I would say is probably one of the most <coughs> appropriate crossovers for how we today would understand a disciple, an apprentice. In the trades, we call them journeymen, which is why I titled it the way I did. Now, in the trades, we call them journeymen. And I got this excerpt out of Washington state law (coughs) for electricians. Obtaining a journeyman electrician license in the state of Washington takes about four years of electrical work experience. Work experience, four years. As well as 96 hours of classroom training. You must hold a valid journeyman electrician for four years before you become eligible to earn a master electrician license. Sounds a whole lot like school, doesn't it? Sorry, Judah. (laughs) If you look into this profession further, you'll learn that to earn the license and title of master electrician, you must pursue even further training and learning. You always study the field. My mom's a nurse. <clears throat> and I remember when she graduated, she actually got to a point where she was an adjunct professor. Don't cough, man. That's hard on me. But <laughs> as an adjunct professor, I'm just kidding. You can cough away. If I can, you can. As an adjunct professor, I kind of assumed, you know, she's teaching at the, at the college level. Professor, she's got it, right? No. Any of you who are in the medical field know you're always having to take classes. You're always having to train. And there's someone who always knows more than you do. And if anyone's worth their weight and salt in their profession, they're gonna do well to partner up with, observe, take notes, and glean from those who have been in it longer and know more. It never stops. That's my point, that's what I'm getting across here. All this said, and this is the next point, a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. That changes things for us, doesn't it? Because it's easy to go, oh yeah, a disciple is a Christian. Well, that has been, forgive me, really watered down, misconstrued, butchered, twisted. But an apprentice of Jesus, for us today in this context, really drives things home. Many in the church, though, treat pastors, theologians, and seminarians like they're masters in their craft. Well, I am a pastor, and I'm up here teaching, and you tell me based on what you've seen so far. Actually, don't say anything. (laughs) I don't sound like a master this morning, do I? Master smoker, smoker. yeah. I have asthma, so fortunately I can't can't smoke. Okay, <laughs> they're not. I am not a master in my craft. By the way, being a pastor is not a craft. And I'll say this, um, and I'm thankful that I've had it modeled for me over the years really well. I'm not Pastor Jake or Pastor Jacob. And if people refer to me that way, it's okay, especially I get it with kids. Growing up, I was taught to respect my elders. So, pastor Jake, okay. But if you're not a kid anymore, do us both a favor and don't refer to me as Pastor Jake. (laughs) Because pastoring is what I do. It's not who I am. It's not my identity. What happens if I stop? I don't stop being me, and I certainly don't stop being who I am to the Lord. No amount of seminary, books, or programs, whether Awana, BSF, Bible College, again, seminary, will make you a master. You might, you might get a piece of paper with some letters, and for those who go to some solid places, there could be something real, really well worth meaning behind it. But institutions, the church, seminaries, don't qualify pastors, or disciples for that matter. We read in the book of Acts in chapter four, Peter and John get brought before <laughs> The Sanhedrin, hoity-toity, really serious guys who knew the word. And they start challenging Peter and John, and it says they noticed they were uneducated men, but they noticed they had been with Jesus. So when these guys challenged them, the retorts they gave were not like anything else they ever heard, because when they spoke, they spoke out of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, not out of human intellect. That's what happens when you spend time with Jesus. If someone acts like or claims to be a type of Christian guru, like come to me and you'll be my disciple, steer clear. Matthew 23, eight. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's the paradigm in in the kingdom. The greatest is the least, and the least is the greatest. And that's the next point. A disciple is a servant. Servants don't get to make up their own plans. It's all based on the, not the whims, the design and the desire of the master. And there's only one master. Jesus is, because only he is God's high priest, Hebrews Hebrews 2.17. Those who give their lives to follow Jesus are not high priests. Again, I know I'm speaking to a group of people, some of you I don't know. We've had, still have, brothers and sisters who have, (coughs) excuse me, come out of the, the, the Catholic church or come from old mainline church denominations and refer to them as priests, but Jesus says, God's word says, there's only one high priest. Amen. You and I don't go through each other to get to God. Yeah. We go through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the gate. <laughs> I am the way, he said, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, John 14:6. But what does that make those who are apprenticing under the high priest? <laughs> 1 Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you apprentice under Jesus, who is the high priest, that makes you a priest in training. A disciple is a priest in training. That's the next point. A disciple is a priest in training. Again, a lot of things I'm reading and saying, you've heard before. But some of these conclusions I'm coming to, I'm going, wow, that really, that changes and affects the way we view and understand things. When you wake up in the morning and you see yourself as a priest of the Most High God, guaranteed, if you really believe that, your conduct and your day will go very differently than if you don't think that way of yourself. I shared this first service. When I, did a, when I took communion with our family, um, I was talking with Judah and Ezra and because this was fresh on my mind, just reflecting with them and, and <clears throat> just remarking how Jesus is our high priest. And I said, you know what that makes you? And I think Ezra said, his child? I went, well, that's true. That also makes you one of his priests. And she went, she got it. She gets it. That's a paradigm shift. That's a perspective change. When you recognize to believe in Jesus is to be an apprentice of Jesus. And if Jesus is the high priest, you apprentice under him, that makes you a priest of his covenant. That just gives me chills talking about it. And that should convict and comfort us at the same time and challenge us. Challenge us. And for me, it is easy sometimes to get in the, to go through the motions, doing my pastorly duty, like Nacho Libre, the great theologian, my priestly duties. But you know, when you realize that you apprentice under Jesus, the idea and belief that you could ever become, you could ever arrive and become a pro goes out the window. You're not. Thank you, no, I appreciate that, thank you. I'm not. I really don't wanna be like Nacho Libre. I wanna be like Jesus. This is why reading and understanding the older Hebrew scriptures is so vitally important to us as disciples today. Just like reading and knowing the Old Testament isn't enough, reading and knowing the new, or in this case, 1 Peter 2, 9, isn't enough either. It's not enough. He's given us the whole counsel of God. If the New Testament gives definition and clarity to the old, the old then gives foundation, framework, and context to work from. Even 1 Peter 2.9, if you didn't know this, is quoting from Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Isaiah. So if you want to understand what it looks like to be a priest now, look back to the prototypes of the Old Testament. We can't write them off. We cannot. We're built on the foundation. We're grafted into the vine. Let's not get too big for our britches. Rick just taught through the book of Joshua and showed us over and over how it demonstrates the life of a disciple is a priest in training. If you missed that or didn't pick it up or you're interested in know no more, again, go listen to that teaching on your own time. <coughs> Excuse me, because it is a paradigm shift. We don't cross the Jordan into the land and then we're in heaven. We cross the Jordan into the land and then the priestly training really kicks in. You know, for all the sleepless nights and discomfort, um, having a child, giving birth to a child, the real work really kicks in once they're born. (laughs) Everything disciples of Jesus learn and perform right now, it's just practice for our positions as priests in his kingdom. Paul addresses the church in Corinth because, again, not to pick on the Corinthian church, we have a lot in common with the Corinthian church. Um, They're feuding with each other. They're arguing so bad that they're literally suing each other. And to do that, they're going outside the household of God, outside the brotherhood of the saints, and they're bringing in people who don't know the Lord to handle their disputes. And Peter calls, or Paul calls them on the carpet and goes, wait a second, isn't it better to just be defrauded? Are you really living your best life now? I certainly hope not because he says in 1 Corinthians 6, one through three, that we who are saints of the most high God will handle issues in his courts. We will judge angels. He goes, if that's what we're gonna do then, can you not handle this right now? Priests in training, apprenticing under the high priest. Does your life reflect a lifestyle of apprenticing under Jesus? Very simple question, but its answer is gonna be different based on who answers it. For you personally, does your life reflect a life of apprenticing under Jesus? Do not mistake when I ask that question, are you perfect? I didn't ask that but are you pursuing your apprenticeship under the high priest? Are you pursuing that? Where might the Holy Spirit be desiring to refine and mature you personally in Jesus? I'll be vulnerable with you. One of the things that the Lord has been really pressing with me, and I'm so thankful for his patience with me, is discipline. Discipline in the mundane things. Daily routines. And you know, there are a lot of things that I can take for granted, but as a father, my children are going to learn based on observation. Because remember, as we're looking at this paradigm of apprenticing, I'm apprenticing my children not just when I take them to church, not just when they go to Awana, or when we do a Bible devotional during the week for school. No, I'm apprenticing them every minute of every day. They'll hear things from their mom about me based on what I'm doing. Jesus said in John, blessed are you if you do these things. It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to read the Bible and memorize it. The Pharisees, again, they knew the Bible, so to speak, better than anyone, and they were missing the boat. So, Does your life reflect a lifestyle of apprenticing under Jesus? Now, here's the second question and we're gonna pick up speed. I won't spend as much time on this. How are we doing on time, by the way? Okay. Matthew 28, verse 18. A lot of you are very familiar with it. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All right, I gotta back up. I don't know if I said it, the second question we're looking at is why make disciples? We looked at what is a disciple, why make disciples? Well, Jesus just said here in Matthew 28, 18, I'm the boss, I'm the master and commander, not just of the church, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth. The buck stops with him. He says then, go therefore in this understanding and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. He doesn't say baptizing them in the name of the church. He doesn't say that. The church is baptized into him, not the other way around. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of Pastor Rick Crawford. Wise sage-less dams, or bonehead Jake. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and that word, word observe has a lot of meaning to it. Observe, to practice, to listen, to practice and do, to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if you believe in Jesus, you believe what he teaches. That's what belief in Jesus means. You do what he says. Do you believe what he says? Really, better put, do our actions, do my actions and speech confirm this command that Jesus gave? I'll apply it to myself. And just because I'm clergy on the taxes or I'm a full-time ministry leader, whatever you wanna call it, Doesn't mean, oh, I'm automatically accomplishing Matthew 28. No. There are a lot of folks who are in ministry who aren't obeying this command. Simply having the title doesn't, doesn't, you know, take you off the hook. What am I actually doing with my life, what God's called me to do? What does your daily life reveal what you believe about Matthew 28 19? Does your daily lifestyle reflect that you actually believe? what he commands to make disciples. There's a lot of Christianity consumers. How many are truly devoted disciples? Now, I wanna say this, and I'm thankful for where Rick, the Lord took us um, through Gideon. It gives me great comfort again to know. Gideon, man, he comes into the story, scaredy cat, and then he rises up because of the Holy Spirit. And then you see how he ends his life, and you're like, "Oh." But he's referred to in Hebrews as a man of faith, even though what we see recorded about the rest of his life, not so hot. Again, you're not a priest because of what you can prove or how you perform. You're a priest because of your faith in Jesus, which gives me great comfort. There are people who don't end their lives well in this life, but they believed in Jesus and they are given the, the, the right to be called sons and daughters of God, and they are put into priestly service. But I wanna get trained up well now, not later. <laughs> so, since the conception of the church, the devil has devoted himself to deceiving disciples of Jesus. Mark 8, 1, or Mark eight thirty one, and he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Side note, what Jesus just taught about the Messiah flew in the face of everything Jews, Jewish people believed the Messiah would be and do. It was an offense. It was scandalous. That's why we read earlier in John chapter 6, when Jesus brought the reality of who the Messiah is, It was uncomfortable. It was unbearable. That doesn't play well with my theology. This was scandalous. It was offensive to think that this would happen to the Christ. Jesus, in verse 32, was stating the matter plainly, plain as day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, "'Get behind me, Satan.' for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. See, there's Peter, one of Jesus's 12. He's got quite a reputation in the scriptures <clears throat> and he's, the Lord has blessed Peter. We see him pop back up in Revelation. I won't talk about that right now. And yet, Peter here, he had just said, Jesus, when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? Peter got the answer right. He was in class, raised his hand, and he said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Gold star, Peter. And then not long after, he does this. He has the audacity to take the master and rebuke him. Why? Jesus tells him. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. What interests is your mind set on right now for your life? What interests you? What are you pursuing in your interests? Our interests influence the direction of our devotion. In other words, look at where your feet go in life. Why make disciples? Well, if you believe in Jesus, it is very simple, because he said so. See, when we receive Jesus, he doesn't become a part of our life, we become a part of his. We need to understand that. And because of that, He's not only Savior, he's Lord, a.k.a. Master. So why do we make disciples? Because he said so. However, he also said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To love Jesus is to obey Jesus. Here's another question. How does your obedience look these days? Before you tune me out or start deprecating yourself because your discipleship process is so deplorable, do you notice the condition Jesus made to obedience? It's love. Disciples are devoted because they love Jesus. Faith works by love, Galatians 5, 6. Peter had messed up royally. Betraying Jesus, and Jesus, in front of his guys, asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And he says back, Jesus, you know that I brotherly love you. And we know what goes on. And at the end, Jesus, at the end, says, do you brotherly love me? Yes, you know that I do. Jesus, in front of the other guys, redeemed Peter. And he went, how much do you love me? He didn't go, that's it. He went, I'll take what you got, and we'll work with that. Love, not religious ritual obligation. Discipleship isn't a moral obligation or a religious responsibility. It is a way of life. I didn't marry my wife because I had to, because it was the right thing to do. I loved her. I love her. Do we really think Jesus' 12 followed him because it was the right thing to do? Did they go, hmm, here's a man of integrity. I should be his disciple. That's ridiculous. Their devotion grew as, the, as they experienced his love and relationship. Their obedience grew as they received his love and as they fed on his love, they loved him back. And what that looks like is obedience. Disciples obey Jesus because they love Jesus. Love inspires us to obey, not obligation. It's not rules and rituals. If that's what you think it's about, man, be blessed, it's not. You can discard that stuff, that's garbage. Jesus preached against that. Allow me to read something to you and then you think about, in this context, what obeying Jesus sounds like. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and i will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me there it is learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light if you have put jesus off at a distance because man you don't want you're not about that life i'm not a religious person or I'm not gonna live my life by a bunch of rules and regulations. I know some Christians, they're hypocrites. Well, if you don't wanna go to church because (laughs) you don't wanna be around hypocrites, don't come. You'll just add to the mix. None of us are perfect. That, what Jesus said, he said, come to me, learn from me. I'll give you rest because I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'll give you rest for your souls because my yoke, you yoke up to me, you you align with me, it's easy because I'm leading the way. And my burden, it's light. It's not burdenless, that would be boring. It's not like we have no work to do, but it's light and it's done under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit through who Jesus is. That sounds great to me. And that's the last point. A disciple isn't driven by duty, they're led by love. When we pick this discussion up again, my plan is, as long as I'm hearing right from the Lord, it's to continue addressing the last two of the four questions. Who makes disciples, and what's my part? We'll camp out in Deuteronomy five and six for that. But I wanna end with this, and prayer team, worship team, you guys can come forward. I wanna end with this. Jesus promised to build his church. He's invited us to follow him. If we accept, he has commanded us to invite others to follow him with us. That's the beauty of the command. If you really buy into who Jesus is and he tells you, now go do this, you're not like, oh. You're like, okay, all right. What, what do I get to do? What can I do? It's so funny with my children as their father. When I give them a command to come help me, they're like, you want me to do this with you? They don't look at it as a chore anymore. It's not a, Obligation. I tell my son, go take out the trash. Uh, I say, hey, Judah, would you grab the trash? I'm going to take the recycling. Can you help me go do this? Will you come with me? Man, he loves that. He eats it up. Discipleship isn't rocket science, it's not a program, and it's not for so called elite Christians. It's a way of life for anyone and everyone who truly loves Jesus. The question is will you accept his invitation? Will you obey his call and join him? I can tell you from personal experience, not just from what he's written here, it is the most freeing and fulfilling thing you will ever experience. Nothing like it. There are many of us who are, so to speak, law students, but we dropped out. Jesus isn't calling you, harassing you, going, hey, you owe student loans. He's saying, come back to class. We miss you. It's not the same without you. So if you've kind of fallen off the tracks, fallen out of the boat, strayed, come back. Come back. Be a part of his church. You're a part of his church, which means you have something to bring that the rest of us need. If there's anything that struck your heart, if there's anything whatsoever, could have nothing to do with what I said, but if the Lord's prompting you, Um, to pray, we would love, that's why we're up here, we'd love to pray with you, okay? Not not just pray over you, we can pray a blessing over you, but we wanna pray with you guys in what the Lord is speaking to your heart. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, we thank you that you have made us your children to anyone who has received your son and believed in him as the way of life. And we wanna follow your way, Master, Would you teach us your ways? And for those of us here who don't know you and may likely have a misperception of what it means for you to be the Lord of their life, would you show them that to be lorded by you is to be loved by you? You got down on your hands and knees as the teacher, master of your disciples and you washed their feet. You served them. I thank you for the privilege it is to be your child, but also the incredible empowering invitation you've given us to be apprentices as priests of your holy priesthood. Would you help us, Lord, to take up that call and live our lives worthy in the manner to which you've called us to live out? In your name, amen.